0: Matthew 21, 12-17 presents a side of Jesus that many would not like to know or talk about. An angry Jesus who chases people out, overturns table, and upsets the leaders. We cannot imagine him doing the same thing today. Would he? Could he? Let's consider the passage together. Hi, this is Hanson from Archivist Awakening, a ministry dedicated to the awakening of saints to know and fulfill our God-given Kingdom assignments. This is what Kingdom 101 is about. We revisit Kingdom fundamentals to know Jesus our King, to embrace His Kingdom, that we may receive and move on Kingdom assignments according to His Kingdom ways. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Lord, once again, as we get into Your Word, We want to hear your Holy Spirit speak to us. Lord Jesus, reveal yourself afresh to all of us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, Amen. On the surface, our homes can look nice, clean and bright. But are they really? Years back as a young couple with our first child, we engaged a part-time helper to clean the house. The helper came in each week, did what she had to do and left. On the surface, everything looked fine. However, when my wife checked and looked more closely, she discovered many spots, corners and areas that were not cleaned properly. Or even worse, not cleaned at all. At first we thought that we might be overly harsh or picky. But in speaking with others, we discovered that they also had the same experience with helpers or contracted cleaners. And so as owners, we had to do some housekeeping of our own, ourselves to set things in order. And that was what Jesus did when He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, the house of God, His Father's house, His own house. On the surface, things looked fine, but it was not. It was housekeeping time. Let's read the passage for today, Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 17. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you not read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Before we get into the details, we must review the significance of the Temple, how it came about, and what it stood for. It all began with the very first Passover in Egypt. Through the sacrifice of the Lamb under the cover of the blood, God brought deliverance to the children of Israel. And then in the wilderness, it was God's first instruction for them to build the tabernacle, the forerunner to the Temple. This tabernacle would be central to Israel's life, situated right in the middle of the tribes. They would be reminded of God's presence, dwelling, tabernacling in and with His people. Just as deliverance was effected through sacrifice, relationship with God was also made possible through the sacrificial system. The tabernacle would be the center of worship and again made possible through the sacrificial system. Later, as they went into the promised land, the tabernacle continued for a while in Shiloh until David secured Jerusalem and had it in his heart to build God a house in the capital city. Well, God told David he would not be the one to build it. Instead, he will prepare the materials and resources, and his son Solomon would be the one to build the temple. Well, Solomon's temple was a glorious temple and with a glorious start. At the dedication, God's glory filled this temple. His presence just came fully into his own house. But over the years, there were compromises and reforms, compromises and reforms, and just it just went on over the years. Finally, the prophet Jeremiah would be the one to prophesy against the temple. It was time for a major housekeeping. Well, The temple was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians, and that led to 70 years of exile. In 538 BC, King Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to rebuild the temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel. The foundation was laid, but the building was halted because of opposition and a lack of resources. It will only be in 520 BC, inspired and spurred on by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, that the rebuilding continued and then was completed. Temple was dedicated in 515 BC, but Zerubbabel's temple was not as glorious as the one that Solomon built. And, not surprisingly, it didn't take long for temple practice to be compromised yet again. In the final Old Testament book in Malachi, the prophet called the people to account. That's right, housekeeping again. Then we get to Herod's temple. Now, the building of Herod's temple started in 20 BC and it was only finished much later in 64 AD. Now Herod made reconstructions, extensions to the temple, the second temple by Zerubbabel. He put in additions and modifications for a much bigger and more glorious establishment. But Herod's temple was more political than it was religious. Herod himself as a half Jew, he was trying to placate to buy the favor of his Jewish subjects. Well, this was the temple that Jesus went into. And when he stepped in, he fulfilled Malachi 3, verse 1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Bloomberg writes in his commentary on Matthew, The Messiah, having been led in apparent triumph into the city, enters the temple, arousing expectations of pro-Jewish nationalist action against Rome. Instead, His attack threatens the sacrificial worship center of Judaism itself. See, on the surface, everything looked fine. But things were not as it seemed. It was time for housekeeping. Again. And this would be a key and pivotal event that would trigger the next events of the next days, leading to Jesus' death. Notice something here. As worship and sacrifice started with Passover in Egypt, the temple system of worship and sacrifice will also end at Passover in Jerusalem. Through His actions, this end of the temple sacrificial system was what Jesus demonstrated, illustrated, and prophesied against. More significantly, This act would provide the impetus for the religious leaders to act decisively against Jesus once and for all. Ironically, in doing so, they would contribute to the fulfillment of this prophecy. There are two accounts of Jesus creating a scene in the temple. Our passage here in Matthew, paralleled by the one in Mark as well as in Luke, as well as the second account recorded by John in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Well, both of these accounts were during Passover, where money exchange and trading booths were set up in the temple grounds. I believe, personally, that these are two separate accounts. And if you look at them, it's interesting. One would be at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the other one at the end. And with these two bookends, uh, in between, the Pharisees had numerous encounters and run-ins with Jesus. Perhaps they were monitoring him because of this outburst or this scene. They were providing feedback all the way through to Temple HQ. Red alert, we've got to keep our eyes out for this guy. Well, this leads me also to speculate. Since Jesus ministered over three years, which means three Passovers, could there have been another housekeeping session, a third one, in between the two that were recorded during Passover again? Possible? Very likely, but of course we cannot confirm this. But Whether two or three times, I think it helps us understand no wonder the leaders were so upset. This was not the first time Jesus had a track record. And finally, at this time, this cannot go on. They were thinking, we've got to deal with it, we've got to take him out. But more precisely as we look at that, whether two or three times, the fact is that nothing changed. After the driving out of the people, the overturning of tables, everything went back to normal. Everything remained the same. Business as usual. Let's get back to temple as usual. Come on, guys. Nothing to see here. Move along. No need to pay any attention to this crazy guy from, uh, where, where was it again? Oh, Galilee. Oh, Nazareth. Ooh. Interestingly, it was the same with the other previous temples. God warned and warned through the prophets, but no one would listen. It was always back to business as usual, temple as usual, until God comes and does the housekeeping himself. Now that we have seen the background and understood a little bit more about the context, we are ready now to explore the key issues and very possibly recurring ones that Jesus himself went into the temple to address. Firstly, we look at commerce and corruption. In Matthew 21 verse 12, we are told that Jesus went in and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. He was overturning the tables of the money changers as well as the seats of those who sold doves. Now, These booths were set up as early as three weeks before the Passover season. It's not unlike the way we may set up a Chinese New Year bazaar or a Hari Raya celebration, right? These are festive seasons, and they were expecting a huge influx of pilgrims into Jerusalem. When they came, they needed to change money into temple shekels, and this was done presumably at a higher rate of exchange because of that season. They needed also to buy temple-approved unblemished animals at tourist prices. Well, Of course, this would be more convenient for the pilgrims travelling from far away, and it avoids the risk of the animals falling sick along the journey to Jerusalem. Also the poor who couldn't afford sheep to sacrifice could buy doves, but again at a higher, more exorbitant price. We see that the sacrificial system had been commercialized, and the temple grounds became a marketplace. There was a willing buyer and a willing seller, and this provided that supply and demand type of mechanics and dynamics. Money transactions uh, they were taking place within temple grounds with questionable motives. Well, some of the aristocrats, the leaders with Greek Hellenistic training and exposure, they were okay with this but clearly it violated the sanctity of God's house. More seriously, holy worship as well as sacrifice this was being compromised. So instead of worship and sacrifice, which is what the temple stood for, the focus became more on prophets and profiteering. It is understood that the leaders and priests might have had a cut from these prophets and takings you know that this can easily then lead to abuse as well as to corruption. And even without corruption, the focus was still entirely wrong. Instead of worshipping God, it is quickly becoming and it became the worship of mammon. Perhaps that's why Jesus spoke out so strongly in the Sermon on the Mount to say, you have to worship God only or mammon, you have to choose. It cannot be one or the other. And so it's housekeeping time, the commercialization of the entire temple system. The driving out of the buyers and the sellers and the overturning of the tables and stalls by Jesus was actually a prophetic act based on Zechariah chapter 14, verse 21. In the NRV, it says, There shall be no longer a trader in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Greed for wealth can never be a part of worship in the Lord's temple because offerings are to be given from a pure heart. The work of the Lord is not to be taken as a money-making enterprise. Later, in warning against the love of money, Paul speaks of those who consider godliness a means of gain. And from such, we are to withdraw. We are not to have any business with them. Now, in the New King James Version, this verse says that in that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. The word in Hebrew can look like trader or Canaanite, but both have the same meaning and understanding that a Canaanite is a figure of one who is morally and spiritually unclean. And so in this issue of commerce and corruption, housekeeping was needed. The second issue was that of complacency and compromise. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. In the second part of Jesus' rebuke, he quotes Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11 about God's house becoming a den of thieves. Let's back up a few verses in Jeremiah 7 to appreciate the context. In verses 1 to 4, God spoke to Jeremiah to say to the people, Right there, stand there in the gate of my house and proclaim this and tell them and warn them that you have been trusting in lying words saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. This was a presumption That because we are God's covenant people, that we have this temple with its sacrifice system and our entrance into the Holy of Holies because of the sacrifice and our worship. And God's presence is always with us. Then we are okay. And the people presumed that, and that presumption led to complacency, all grounded on the temple. But what was happening in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 to 11? Jeremiah accused the people of repeatedly sinning. I say again, repeatedly sinning against God. He mentions stealing, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, the breaking of the Ten Commandments. However, because of their presumption and their complacency that they have the temple and they're God's people, They felt no shame breaking God's laws, living the way as they did, and then after that coming to stand before Him in God's house. They believed that their observance of temple ritual, temple worship, temple sacrifice, it allowed them to continue living as they did, without fear or consequence of any punishment. And so the temple had become a den of thieves and of robbers. And this is not referring to the trading or the commercial gains and the profiteering. The dens referred to the caves. Now, let me explain. In those times, the thieves or the robbers, they often took refuge in the caves, in the Judean hills for protection until their pursuers gave up searching for them. And after that, when it's all gone, they would emerge again and they would go out, to commit the same crimes over and over again, and they will keep running back to these caves or these dens for that kind of a refuge. So the temple now had become a spiritual refuge for the people. and. By performing the rituals, they believe that their religious practices freed them and allowed them to continue with their wicked practices, to sin against God, to break their uh, commandments or to break their promises with God and to break His commandments, leading to compromise. You see, complacency, presumption led to compromise. Double lives. They were Hypocrites in the temples, they were one thing, but out there it was a totally different picture. Housekeeping totally needed. So Jesus knew. All these things were happening with his people. And so he comes in. he says, I'm overtending everything. I'm revealing what's in your hearts. Stop living double lives. Stop using the temple, its sacrifice and its worship, standing before God and, you know, having all your nice, nice religious talk and all. And then after that, you justify to say, I'm okay. I'm cool. I, I can keep doing this because if not, uh, if something is wrong, I'll just come back to the temple and everything is good. Complacency and compromise was a big, big issue that needed housekeeping. The third issue was how the temple system and everything it stood for became clubbish and it became closed. Let me explain. In Matthew 21 13, Jesus said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And here he was quoting from Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 to 7. God's house is to be a house of prayer. In the version in Mark, it says, and it quotes in full, a house of prayer for all nations. Now, this does not mean that you just hold a church prayer meeting and then pray for the nations. What it means is that God's house is open to everyone, to all nations, all peoples to come and worship and to serve Him. And these foreigners, as it were, were those who have joined themselves to the Lord, to serve Him. These are people who believed in the Lord and believed in His kingdom. Now, Israel should rejoice and welcome these foreigners into the temple. But that wasn't happening. It was still largely nationalistic, Jewish, primarily for the Jews. But in the eschatological era to come, God's temple truly will be a house for all nations, all peoples to come to seek him, to pray and to have communion and fellowship with him and with one another. That was what Jesus was trying to tell them. It should be for everyone and it should be for all nations, but the way that you're conducting for yourself, in the ways that you're instituting things and barriers and hindrances, you are violating this and I am exposing you. In Matthew 21, verse 14, there's a very interesting verse that's inserted there. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Suddenly, there is a miracle taking place, a healing event down there involving the blind and the lame. Let's understand this. The blind and the lame, they were not required to make the journey to the temple during Passover. Because according to the purity laws in Leviticus chapter 21 verses 17 to 18, they were not allowed to offer bread because of their condition. Now, don't see this as an act of rejection, but one of demonstration of holiness and purity, and as well as grace and concession. Imagine how hard it is for the blind and the lame to get to the temple because they, at the end, they were still considered sanctified by the Lord. Now, the blind and lame could also be considered as outcasts or enemies. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, there's an account of King David and his men going to Jerusalem to fight against the Jebusites. And the Jebusites ridiculed David and his men saying that even the blind and the lame can repel them. They were so confident of their fortress at Jerusalem that they made fun of David, saying that these uh, people, blind, lame, even their soldiers, like that, anyone, the weakest, can just push David and his men off. Of course, we know that David, uh, with his strategic and military prowess, uh, overcame Jerusalem and conquered them. And So now this same phrase is then used in return to describe David's enemies. That these then should not be allowed to come into David's house. Unfortunately, it was taken literally and tradition later excluded the physically blind and lame from the temple. So we see that the temple system, as well as its practices, became very clubbish. It was closed. It was clickish even. In the name of holiness and purity, only those who were considered worthy could enter the temple. And you have got to jump through hoops or at least perform in a certain way or be of a certain status so that you get to hang out with the right ones. It created different classes of worshippers, the us versus them. Can you see it's housekeeping time again? Because it's time to bring everyone in. Jesus wants everybody to be a part of his family. He comes and he makes all worthy before God so that all can approach him, all can worship him. There's healing, there's ministry to be found in the house of God. And that's what he did. He heals the blind. He heals the lame. He accepts and he receives this. And he demonstrates to all how he as Messiah, as King, would open that way so that all can have fellowship with him, with God, and with one another. Well, these are the issues. Commerce and corruption, complacency and compromise, clubbish and closed. These were the issues that Jesus spoke out and acted against. These acts and that very incident set the tone for what would take place in the next days. There would be increasing intensity of confrontations between Jesus and the leaders, and this would lead finally to Jesus' death. Prophesying judgment and destruction against the temple would invite scourging and a threat of death. This is not new. Look at Jeremiah. The moment he spoke against the temple, the leaders came out against him. And execution would not be unthinkable if this leader, by that time, would have gathered a significant number of followers. That's what happened to the prophets before. When they challenged nationalism as well as the policies of the rulers, they were all killed. And so it's not surprising that Jesus would finally end up dead because of doing something like that. The leaders' position, they were supposed to uh, keep the peace, the law and the order. And everything depended on them so that there would also be peace with the Romans to enable them to make sure that they do the job well, they actually had permission to punish the violations of the sanctity of the temple with death. Or if they didn't want to do that, they could actually hand Jesus over to the Romans as a messianic pretender, right? An offense viewed by the Romans as treason, also punishable by death. And with all these reasons floating around in your mind and Jesus creating this scene, they would finally then plot to have Jesus killed. They couldn't do it honestly and openly and truthfully because they just couldn't quite put their finger on what Jesus was doing and who Jesus was, and perhaps He really is the Messiah. And so what they did, as we would see in Matthew chapter 26 in time to come, this is what they did. They plotted against Jesus by trickery to kill Him. And they said, "Let's let's not arrest Him during this Feast of Passover, too dangerous. Let's do it separately, quietly. Of course, we know that finally they did that. They got their plans to be fulfilled through the Romans. Jesus was crucified. But upon the death of Jesus, the temple veil ripped from top to bottom, signifying the end of the physical temple system. Through that, a new and living way was opened through Jesus. His death upon the cross. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, it declares that a new way into the Holy of Holies. Jesus started the housekeeping, but God used the Romans to end it fully. In 70 AD, the physical temple was destroyed because there was no more need of that temple. But does it mean that the temple ended there and then? No, not at all. Because God's house continues through the body of Christ, the church, his spiritual temple. Remember the other account in John chapter 2, in verses 18 to 20, after Jesus cleansed the temple and did what he did, very similar to this account. The Jews asked him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And he answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They were totally lost, clueless, puzzled. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You want to build it, raise it in three days? And in verse 21, he explains, he was speaking of the temple of his body. And it was only after the resurrection when his body was raised up by the Holy Spirit, the disciples remembered and they believed and he understood what Jesus was talking about. Friends, at the resurrection, the start of the spiritual temple was effected through the body of Christ. Look at the passages later in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. It speaks of the building up of one building, one temple. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to 5, that we together with the Jews, we are built up as one spiritual building. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16 and 17, and later on in chapter 12, 12 to 13, all speaks of how in Christ we've been baptized into His body. In case you're still wondering what these are all talking about, believers in Christ become His body. And since He says that His body is the temple, then we today are the temple, the house of God, the ecclesia, the church of Jesus Christ, the people of the kingdom. We are God's house and we are God's temple. Amen. What a glorious, glorious revelation and truth. But does it mean that all's good now just because we are the temple? I'll tell you there's still a problem because through the years, somehow, unwittingly and unknowingly perhaps, or even worse if it was intentional. We have re-enacted the entire temple system through the church system, thereby creating and suffering the same issues. Do you think it might be housekeeping time again? Let's look at the same issues that Jesus addressed and ask ourselves as the church the temple of God, the house of God, whether we are subjecting ourselves to the same issues and problems and missing it big time. Commerce and corruption. Has God's house been commercialized and corrupted? I know that's a very difficult question to answer, a very harsh one even to ask. But have we been worshipping mammon, money, material wealth, instead of worshipping God? Have we turned the Father's business into, really, a business of transactions and profits? Have we been looking at the wrong indicators of success, where we consider prosperity as a blessing and we do all we can to heap up these earthly and material treasures for ourselves? Are we processing our processes even as our practices through these commercial means and commercial indicators? Housekeeping needed, you think? How about complacency and compromise? Has our assurance of salvation resulted in complacency that has led to compromise? I mean, after all, I've said the sinner's prayer. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven doesn't matter how I leave. Have we presumed upon the grace of God as well as the love of God? Can you see why the doctrine of hyper-grace is so dangerous? That keeps saying, you can do anything you want. His grace will always be there. When we commit a mistake, don't we find ourselves saying, oh, thank God for His grace, His grace. I love the grace, the amazing grace of God let's not presume upon His grace. Or for that matter, His love. God is love. But God's love would be also disciplining love. Tough love as needed from time to time. We cannot keep saying that God loves me. He understands. He allows me to do the things that I want to do. Have we mistaken church membership and attendance as signs of spiritual growth and maturity? Have we come to this kind of understanding that says, oh, I'm a baptized member of this church. I serve, I attend cell groups, so I I guess I'm okay. Outside in the world, I I can do what I want to do. That's a separate thing. That's the real world out there. Have we used our identity and position in Christ as a license to live them hypocritically? Have we then become Sunday Christians and for the rest of the week, we live like devils? Have we treated the church like they did the temple, a den of robbers and of thieves, a spiritual haven where we are holy holy like angels, but giving us permission to do what we want to do out there, committing the sins over and over again. Housekeeping needed, you think? Have we become clubbished and closed, cliquish through our Christian subculture? Do we just go to church and then miss being the church? Have we become like this religious club that's exclusive, knowing the right words to use and to say and to sound right, where we want to be inclusive, but actually we are not. When people come in, we say you have to behave like us, otherwise you're not just not part of this club. We are supposed to be ministering to those who are broken, those who are lost. We are supposed to be reaching out to these. Instead, have we begun to frown at others when they are different? Have we looked at others with eyes that might not be right? We look down on them, we shun the broken, when we should be reaching out and ministering to them? Housekeeping needed, you think? Do you think it's a time now for housekeeping all over again? What would Jesus do if He visited our churches today? Would He overturn things? Right? Would we put a stop to all our religious practices and all our churchy activities? Let's not talk about the church. What would Jesus find if he examined each of our bodies as the temple of God? Because each of us individually and together corporately, we are God's house. And if he did, and if he pointed all these things to us, what would we do? How would we respond if these issues were made clear to us, revealed to us? Would we just look at Jesus or his agents and representatives and his prophets or his speakers and we say, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Would we do that? I know you would probably say, no, I don't. I, I, I wouldn't be like that. Shall we consider how the leaders responded to Jesus and learn from them? Let's read Matthew chapter 21, verses 15-16. to 16. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. Notice again the issues of humility and pride. We have been journeying through the chapters of Matthew 18, 19, 20, and now in 21, we see the same problems again. By now, we should be familiar with the significance of children. They are pictures of innocence and of humility. Jesus was using the humility of children to juxtapose as well as to contrast against the pride of the leaders. And God would use these often, the humility of little ones and his people, to counter that of the prideful. The pride of the leaders, it's so hard when position and power are involved. And if we are not careful, pride is often the result. And pride is dangerous because it prevents us from seeing and from hearing rightly. When challenged with truth, pride will say, Who do you think you are? The leaders couldn't deny the miracles happening right before their eyes. Instead they took issue with Jesus accepting public praise as the son of David a messianic title. They saw the miracles, they heard the praises, but pride prevented them from seeing and hearing correctly. They couldn't see or hear the correction that Jesus was bringing. They only saw and heard the competition in Jesus, threatening their status quo, shaking and rocking their peace. So, instead of responding and repenting They retaliated. Who do you think you are? Pride also says this. Well, If I'm wrong, then God himself will tell me. They were upset with Jesus for not asking the children to stop. Jesus then implied that the children knew the scriptures better than the leaders by asking them, Have you not read? Don't you know your Bibles well? In case you don't, then let me quote this for you from Psalm chapter 8, verse 2. And this psalm was a psalm of praise and worship to God. And by attributing it to himself, Jesus was accepting worship that is reserved for God alone. In fact, he was telling them, in case you didn't realize, I am God. I am the one who is greater than the temple. The owner of the house is here, and that's why I have every right to do the housekeeping. It was God Himself that day that came into the temple to overturn tables and to personally handle the housekeeping. The leaders couldn't understand that. They couldn't see it. They kept saying, if I'm wrong, let God tell me. God was there to tell them, but they missed it totally. It's so scary, right? How God can speak and show us through His Word, His prophets, His people, so very, very clearly and yet pride will miss it entirely. Friends, God can be shouting, overturning everything in our lives, and we still cannot see it or hear it. And that's the problem with pride. Spiritual pride thinks it's standing up for God when it actually is going up against God. Instead of responding and repenting, pride rationalizes and removes God's representatives. This is such a stark warning for all of us and especially those who are in some level of leadership. Finally, no one can say that God did not give a second or third chance. God will do all he can to get our attention and he will leave us to decide if we want to align with him or not. And that was what Jesus did. Finally in Matthew 21 verse 17, having done all he did and said all he did, then he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged it there. Let's bring this teaching to a close. Today we no longer have a physical temple, but a spiritual one. The people of God, the body of Christ, we are God's temple. However, we must be careful not to go back to the outward forms of the temple and miss the heart of what being the house of God means. Church or religion can look very good on the outside, but Jesus is not impressed with that. Paul says to avoid those with a form of godliness. If we are not careful, we encounter the same exact issues that Jesus acted against commerce and corruption, complacency and compromise, clubbish and closed. If we do not clean up our own act, we cannot complain when Jesus comes and does the housekeeping himself. And he will, because we are his house. Throughout scriptures, God is gracious and patient, allowing many, many, many chances for his house to be set in order. As in times past, the Lord will warn through His Word and His Prophets. God forbid that we would just say, Amen, and then just carry on with business as usual, church as usual, temple as usual. God is speaking, but are we listening? Is the Lord saying something to us about our churches and our lives, your life? Has he sent prophets and servants to awaken us, to warn us? Is he asking us to deal with these issues and not sweep things under the carpet anymore? I pray that we will respond rightly with humility and not with pride. If not, God, once more, will do the housekeeping himself. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you also, Lord, for revealing things, to uncover things, Lord, so that we can see things as they are, to see our own hearts as they really, really, truly are. Forgive us, Lord, where we have compromised. Forgive us, Lord, where we have been complacent, taking you for granted and justifying our wrong acts. Forgive us, O Lord, where we have focused on commercial things, material things, worshipping money, profits, more than we worship you. Forgive us, Lord, where we have been inward, clubbish, clickish, without even realizing it. Forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us once again, because by the blood of Jesus and the way made open, we know we have this promise to still be in relationship with you and that, Lord, to be enabled to live for you. Help us, Lord, to glorify you, to be your temple, your house, your body, that will bring you pleasure. And from this point forth, may we live powerfully for you, not with pride, but always with humility. Thank you, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for another Kingdom 101 teaching. For past teachings, visit our website, kingdom101.archibusawakening.org. Until the next time, this is Hanson signing off. Stay awakened, aligned, and assigned. God bless you.